welcome to JW Community Podcast, where my mum is basically blabbering on about nonsense. Thank you, fam. Hello and welcome to JW Community Podcast and we've moved to a new home and I hope that you'll all subscribe to the new channel if you want to continue listening to this content. I have got Lara with me today. Hi Lara, how are you? I'm good thanks Louise, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. Now Lara, I'd really like you to introduce our two guests that you've lined up today please if you would. Yes, so good morning to Carmel and Lily. Let me just explain who Carmel is, and we're very grateful to have her as a guest on today's show. She is a counselling psychologist, a domestic violence specialist, and author of a book I've got in my hands called Blame Changer, and she's got a website called psychrespect.com. And I was introduced to Carmel through Lily. So I'll just say hello, Carmel. Hello, everyone. Lovely to be with you. And great to have you. So I'll just introduce Lily. Now, Lily and I grew up probably from about the ages of three, and our parents lived near each other. Her parents are Jehovah's Witnesses. My parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. We went to school together. Lily is a mum, a new grandma, which is a new word for grandma. She's a daughter. She's my friend. She's an ex-Jehovah's Witness. She's a survivor of domestic violence, which is our topic today, and she's an advocate against the abuse. And I'll just quickly say hello to Lily. Hello, everyone. Nice to be And I'm just opening your book, Carmel, and I'm looking at the introduction, and I've just introduced the topic as domestic violence, and I'll just read half a sentence, half a paragraph of yours until I come back to you. So your book says the terms domestic violence and family violence are sometimes used interchangeably, and it includes child abuse, elder abuse, sibling violence, parents who are abused by their children, violence in step-parenting or same-sex relationships. And you also, today we'll focus on that between a man and a woman or intimate partner groups, which is possibly via Lily. So, Carmel, could you please do us the favour to introduce yourself further? Well, yes, certainly. So for about the last 25 years, I've worked with survivors of people people who've lived with violence at home. So women and children mainly because they certainly are the people who experience it mainly. And I became fascinated with the recovery path for women and particularly with the way that the community responds to women who experience this because often there's a lot of myths and misinformation out there that does victims a disservice. So it's much harder to survive then because you can't get the help you want or you don't understand often even that uh, there's help available or that what is happening is abusive. So all of that fascinates me and I wrote the book really to give my perspective to the general public really on what family violence is because a lot of conversations I have and I do a bit of public speaking about this, um, so a lot of the questions I get I've always felt are very... Um, misinformed or victim blaming. So I'm, I'm a bit of an advocate myself, really. You've got the acronym after your name, Carmen, and I asked you this last week, but you've got O-A-M-F-A-P-S written after your name. Could you explain to us what those initials mean? Yeah, sure. So F-A-P-S is a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society, so about 1% of members of that that 
association. I think there's something like 22,000 members, um, fellows, and it's really just this is the association saying, well, you've done a reasonably good job. So that's, that's nice. And the OAM was a surprise on Australia Day last year. It's the Order of Australia Medal. So, uh, it's, I think in England, what is called the OBE. Wow. Congratulations. Oh, that's okay. Look, I, I know that there are hundreds and hundreds of people out there doing at least as good a job um, who don't get recognised. So I just see it as something that helps me have a voice in, in the advocacy that I'm doing, really. Definitely. So you didn't get to visit, so you didn't get to meet the Queen, though, when you were giving your Order of Australia, right? No, no. In Australia, you get to meet the Governor. So the Governor oh. of Victoria gave me that. Yes. And Excellent. she is a former family court judge, which I thought was very interesting. Now, um, if I just introduce further Lily, and Lily perhaps can talk about herself. I've just used a lot of words to describe her. Mm-hmm. But Lily, the topic today being domestic violence or intimate partner violence or intimate partner terrorism, it's also called. That's right. So can you just explain your story of how you met Carmel? Carmel, I met Carmel initially. We had a meeting through an organisation called Don Care. And Don Care has, they run many programs, a couple of which involve what they call the Dawn Angels, as well as they run courses on domestic violence to teach women how to re- identify the signs and also to deal with the trauma of having been a victim of domestic violence. And so one of the, the time I first met Carmel was actually when Don Care asked some survivors of family violence to come for put forward their thoughts and comments to be collated for the Royal Commission into Family Violence submission that was done by Don Care, which Carmel was in charge of. So that was my first meeting with Carmel, Carmel then. Yeah. Mm. And so we're going to get into more detail about the background of Lily's story, but in the meantime, what I'm interested in hearing from is Carmel. And Carmel, you made it clear to me before we coordinated this podcast, that you're talking from your own perspective as a psychologist and you're not speaking against or for any particular religion or sect or cult. Um, So I just want to make that really clear. You're very impartial today and we want to hear about the research that you've done and how that relates to us as Jehovah's Witnesses or in this case, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. So can I hand back to you, Amal, to tell us more about your study, your research, your work? Sure. Um, yeah, look, thanks for, thanks for saying that. I'm certainly not impartial in relation to violence, but I don't have a particular understanding or particular, hopefully, a particular bias about any religion, really. So I wrote Blame Changer, and after that, a whole lot of people got in touch with me. They still do, saying, you know, they've, they've read the book, and then they would tell me a bit of their story. And one of the recurring themes in this story was the difficulty of navigating the justice system. And for a lot of them, they feel they don't get justice from the justice system. And that's something that's always interested me because it's one of the most common complaints in the counselling that I've been doing. I find that, you know, certainly the a lot of the therapeutic work is to do with recovering from the experience itself. But there's also a lot of work that has to be done supporting people who are basically recovering from the system. They're, they're battling the system. 
and uh, sometimes feel that they're being re-traumatised and re-victimised. So I set about writing another book, which is about the uh, the path for survivors through the justice system. So I, I spent last year doing a lot of interviews with survivors and with professionals, and I'm writing up that book now. It hasn't got a yeah. title yet. I've read quite a bit about of um, you know reports and books from both the UK and the US, and the kind of difficulties that survivors' experience are mirrored. Yeah, certainly in the UK and the US, and I suspect um, in many other places as well. But there was a particular book that from America that I was very interested in, and it talked about um, an area that had been really making a concerted effort to respond well. And so I went over and had a look at how they do that. So I'll I'll be talking about that in my book as well. You know, doing it well really is listening believing and doing good risk assessments and making perpetrators accountable. You know, you really would, you know, it's common sense. I'm glad you used the word perpetrator because I'm looking further into your book and you say that they're sometimes called perpetrators or abusers. And I know that Lily speaks to me as her ex-partner. She used to say ex-partner. She now says my abuser. So she has cottoned on to the language to be used to help move the blame from her as a victim to him as the perpetrator. And I opened up with saying that we're really talking about women and men, but you have made it very clear and we'll make it clear here that this can happen between same-sex couples and it happens not only where men are the perpetrators but where women are the perpetrators. But looking at the statistics, it's primarily men perpetrating against women. For example, in your book, you say men who experience violence are overwhelmingly more likely to be the victims of other men, and this occurs in one-off situations in public settings. However, women are much more likely to be the victims of men in repeated attacks behind closed doors. So that's why the focus on that topic. Can I just, I'm just going to speak up for a friend that I know who was a victim of domestic violence from his wife. So I know you've acknowledged that already, but I am just going to acknowledge that that does happen to men rarely, but I know of two actually, one from the past and one from fairly recently. It certainly can happen and women can be and can be abusive and can be physically violent. In the research that done, what one of the distinguishing things that they find is that it is much more likely that women fear for their safety than yes. men do. So whereas men often are in the experience, have an experience of feeling uh, humiliated, verbally mm. abused, belittled. Um, it's, it's less common that they fear for their physical safety and it's also more common that they have the resources to leave. Yeah. They're more likely to be employed. They're more like, they're less likely to have the immediate care of young children. So there are different factors, I think. And surrounding all of this, is I guess our culture that in some ways uh, makes it harder for men to get support but in other ways makes it easier for people who are abusive to get away with that abuse. There's a tolerance of violence against women in our culture. Let me pull something out from the book, Carmel, again, to just talk about this topic further, deeper. And what you've written here is for those asking whether the person using violence against them is mentally ill, because a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses would say that, notice how your partner treats other people, such as your friends, your workmates, or your family. 
Are they treating them as badly as they treat you? Can they be charming to others one minute and nasty with you the next? Um, you've, you've got this fantastic analogy about road rage. So if you compare road rage to domestic violence, just as an analogy, if, if a person loses it in road rage, do they still lose it if their mother is in the car or their toddler is in the car? Would they still lose it if there was a police car alongside? Would they show the bird? Which to us, Louise, I've got to just convert that to English speakers. Stick your middle finger up. Okay. <laughs> to an ambulance that cut in front of them. If they got out of the car, what led them to decide to do that? People who use violence against a partner are making decisions all along the way. For their behaviour to change, they need to understand and admit they will be making the choice to be abusive. And it might be a good time to introduce um, Lily again and her backstory because her story is not a story of physical abuse. Her story is a story of psychological abuse for which Carmel is really experienced. So, Lily, can you tell us, even going back to how you got into this situation of domestic violence? My um, story of domestic violence goes back quite a long way and I would go so far to say that my first relationship, which was with a man who was also a Jehovah's Witness, he was also abusive and I put, when I reflect back now, I put down a lot of what I've experienced um, and I can link it to the way I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. After I left my first husband, I thought I knew everything about I actually then didn't frame it as domestic violence because I didn't know then what I know now, but I knew it was a very unhealthy relationship and I thought after ending that first relationship that I knew enough to protect myself from further harm in another relationship. (laughs) That was the naive me. I met my second partner who was not a Jehovah's Witness online on a, a dating site in 2008 and he was a senior member of the police force and extremely charming and um, the reality was that he was pretending to be someone he wasn't and he did that for a very long time. And commonly, like a lot of domestic violence stories, um, he managed to keep his act going until we moved in together and when we moved in together, you know, again, looking back now in hindsight, I can see some signs that I should have been more startled by than what I was. And again, I think the reason that I didn't pick up on what would now I would now refer to as red flags is because of my upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness, where men are men and women are not equal. It's considered that men run the household. They are the head of the house. They control money. So when someone takes control of your finances, I didn't blink an eye. I just thought that's what happens in relationships. The background of being taught that what happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors contributed significantly because I just thought everyone has relationships like I have, not realising that I was suffering much more than I ever should have. It was a situation that once I moved in, I think within four months I was pregnant. And from that moment in particular, yeah, things started to change quite quickly. And by the end of my pregnancy, I was 
questioning who this person was, where was the person that I met on the dating site, realising again I was in another unhealthy relationship. My head was in a spin thinking, but how has this happened again? Yeah, so it's it's complicated by the fact that you can't see me, but in inverted commas, only psychological abuse. Trying to articulate the type of abuse that I've experienced was really complex because I didn't at the start know the language. Now I do. Now I know I was being gaslighted continuously. He constantly projected his behaviours onto me, would accuse me of things I'd never done, but often um, with some things I didn't find out till the relationship ended, that he was in fact doing just never taking responsibility for his behaviour, never apologising for anything. Yeah, so so many things. Um, Can I draw you to a couple of examples that you shared with me? Yeah. I remember uh, you had been with your partner for about two years or your abuser for two years and you wanted to talk to me about something and you weren't comfortable with saying it and you had to wait until it was the right time to tell me. And you came to me and you confided that, Everything was great except for one thing and you couldn't really put your finger on it but it didn't feel right for just one reason and you couldn't tell anyone. You didn't feel comfortable that you could share that with anyone but me because I would understand and wouldn't tell anyone and we kind of kept that secret, you and I, for some years and the types of things that he used to do, um, if I recall one day I was in the car with you and he was ringing you while you were driving in the car. Mm. And you said, oh, just answer this. And I said, no, you can't answer that. You're driving. And you turned to me and you said, if I don't answer, he's going to wonder where I am. He's going to think about what I'm doing away from him. I have to answer this call. And I said to you, you can't. You're driving. You have to pull over and answer the call. And can't you get back to him in an hour? Because we were busy on our way to do something. In fact, we were going to visit a lawyer. But you said to me, if I don't answer this call, he'll keep calling until I answer. He'll call 10 times and until I answer. So I must answer the call. So that really, I had alarm bells from that incident, such a benign incident. But an incident where you behaved in a way that I hadn't seen before, that someone else was controlling you because you're quite strong. Mm. Another incident, maybe you want to describe this one. It was an incident about um, car radio something like that, You, he had a car radio and somehow it wasn't working and he blamed you for it being damaged. You know, the, he had his sort of DVD player in the car for the kids and it was an off-the-market one. It was a bit dodgy and it stopped working and I got accused of breaking it. So I got accused for anything that broke down in the house just because that's what happens sometimes. I got blamed for as if I deliberately, maliciously broke the item. Anyway, he managed to fix this DVD player, but once he fixed it, I was too scared to touch it again, so I never used it. This one occasion, and the dentist is, you know, a bit of a wait away, a good third. So, um, I went up and hopped in the car and to head home, and at which he was driving. As we took off, he said, oh, and, and I said, with kids, and I said, because I don't want to touch it, because I don't want to be blamed for breaking it. And that's all I said, very calmly, very, that's it. So, yeah, he slams on the brake, erratically pulls over to the curb, 
gets out of the car furious and walks off in the opposite direction that we were driving, at which point I just shakily get out of the driver's seat into the uh, in, from the passenger seat into the driver's seat and drive home. Of course, the whole time you're now anxious, oh, my God, when's he going to come home? What's he going to be like by the time he gets home? Um, when he did get home, he just completely ignored me for a number of days and then all of a sudden we're back to being normal like nothing at all has at all have ever happened um these are the kinds of things you just live on eggshells you don't know what the next trigger is going to be it could be the slightest most insignificant thing um but of course he never apologizes for his behavior um and that's deliberate they want to keep you um you know I spent my so much of my time trying to anticipate the next where the next rage was going to come from, and trying to avoid that from happening. Um, but it's impossible to do. It's just impossible to do with these abusers. So I'll, I've got a good um, example to bring up later in the podcast. But maybe Carmel, would you like to comment on that experience that Lily has just told us? Well, I'm happy to do that. I mean, what you got there is absolute textbook example of uh, interpartner violence, where you've got somebody who is um, intimidating you, and the way that they're doing it makes you wonder if, it, if there's something wrong with you. So that's very common. The other is that kind of tantrum that you describe. You know almost like a two-year-old throwing Lego across the room because something yeah. hasn't gone right. And yeah. then doing that in a way that frightens your partner but doesn't actually it – is, is nothing like having a conversation to explain something that might have upset you between yourself and your partner. So it's not uh, – that's the difference, I think, with between just bad behaviour in a relationship and domestic violence, because domestic violence involves intimidation and humiliation. And one way to keep somebody under your control is to make them too scared to do anything except what you want. I mean, that's really the, the bottom line. That's what they're wanting. And unfortunately, it works. It works for who are abusive. They end up getting their own way. They end up being in charge. They don't end up with a loving relationship, but they do no. end up somebody who is running around all the time trying not to upset them. And if you're running around all the time trying not to upset them, a bit people call walking on eggshells, the chances are that you're in a relationship where you're being badly treated. The other is this complete failure to take responsibility. The, the beginning of that scenario was really based on anything that goes wrong will be my fault, and yeah. then if I voice that, I'm in big trouble. Because, you know, that makes out as though he's done something wrong and we can't have that. So, uh, you know, that, that example is such a good example and it is, it is repeated in a million ways. I have heard thousands and thousands of scenarios like that which have all of those features. Now, can I just overlay on top of this why we're discussing this in a podcast that's aimed at helping ex-Jehovah's Witnesses? is because there's an institutional element, I think, um, that, that Lily touched on, which is the whole subjection issue that you raised with as a Jehovah's Witness. So 
on top of all those abuse issues that go on between lots of individuals and Jehovah's Witnesses are trained to be, to utterly believe that women should be in subjection and that word subjection is a really problematic word and it's used over and over again in the Kingdom Halls and I remember quite nice um, elders trying to contort themselves into making the whole issue of subjection sound nice so they're trying to to take the word, because that's the word that Watchtower said they have to use, but they said, but it's not a horrible word. What it means is, and then they'll try and relate a nice thing like, oh, it means like when you really care for something and you, and I'm thinking, that's not how the word sounds. It sounds horrible. It sounds like somebody's been completely subjected to something that they don't want to be subjected to. But that's the... That's the religious overlay, I think, that, that probably makes pe some people put up with it for longer. I just, I think what you're talking about really is a kind of a microcosmic version of how a culture, you know, a culture that exists within a community, um, can be a tool, really, for somebody who is violent or abusive. And so whether that is a, our culture in its broadest sense, whether it's a religious community, a cultural community, a geographical community, a corporate community, it doesn't matter. Wherever you have a community where one section of people is more prized, more valued, um, regarded more highly and given more freedoms than another, then what you have is a landscape that allows abuse to occur and we've seen this in all kinds of uh, settings you know over the last many years there's been terrible scandals in churches there've been terrible scandals in all kinds of institutions in relation to the abuse of children there's been a lot of talk about uh, the bullying that happens in corporate cultures in relation to intimate partner violence though you've got far fewer avenues for somebody both to recognise what's happening and to get support for what's happening. And if they're trying to get support within a culture that tends to negate what they're experiencing, then they're really, you know, it's a catch-22. They're between the, the proverbial rock and the hard place. If you If somebody blows the whistle, then they will be seen as attacking the culture rather than as exposing use of that culture. So, you know, I don't I don't know very much about the Jehovah's Witness community, but what I do know is that and this is actually absolutely backed up by research that's done very globally by the United Nations and by Amnesty International, for instance, where you have a community or a society that has um, a few key features, you get higher rates of violence against women and children. And those key features are strict gender stereotyping, a prizing of men over women, and a tolerance of the subjugation of women. So a tolerance of oppression. Now, you can dress up oppression in all kinds of ways, as in this is how God intended people to behave. This is how, this is the... You know, this is biological because men are different from women and, you know, they have babies. You can dress it up any way you like, but fundamentally, if you have a culture where 
a person's personal autonomy is allowed to be um, denied, then you end up in that community of having a risk of higher rates. And in fact, in, you do have communities where there are risks of higher rates of violence against women and children. And you know, it's, I think that that is a um, very hard conversation for a lot of communities to have. Because I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to to put in place something that is different from what has existed for hundreds or thousands of years. That's a that's big. Two other interesting elements that I think play into it are the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses are made to believe that any outside agencies should be treated with deep suspicion, so they don't like going to. Um, psychologists or counsellors or the police or social services or any kind of help they view they're told that those agencies belong to satan's world so it makes it very hard for them to reach out for external help and the other thing that plays into it is that jehovah's witnesses are encouraged women are encouraged to stay with abusive men because it may win them over to jehovah if they show a good example and don't complain and don't nag and don't um, behave in an unchristian way. So there are articles in the Watchtower that give little imaginary scenarios of a woman that's been beaten up by a husband who's not a Jehovah's Witness, and she stays with him, and 20 years later he converts to being a Jehovah's Witness. So they're actively encouraged not to leave abusers. You know, that's not unusual in some ways to um, uh, the culture I grew up in, because I was brought up as Roman Catholic, and... Uh, in the same way, you know, marriage is forever. You marry for better or worse. Uh, and I've certainly, um, over the years had a lot of clients who, uh, have great difficulty in, um, coming to terms with an end of a relationship that is sometimes literally killing them because of this, um, desire to be exemplary, if you like, in their faith. And, uh, it's very sad when somebody has to choose their safety over their faith. No woman, man or child should ever have to choose between their beliefs and their safety. And if their safety is at risk and the beliefs are a threat to that, there's something, you know, you need to be questioning those beliefs. And this, the, the, the idea that people should um, just put up with it is as, as old as... Um, as old as the hills, really. The, the, it's a bit like the justification I used to hear from some people in, when I worked in child protection of the spare the rod and spoil the child, which is actually a misunderstanding, I understand, of the biblical intention. But, you know, people who want to, um, treat their partners badly will use whatever tools work. And one of the tools that works for people who have a, a deep faith is their faith. So they will quote, you know, I talk to a lot of women who have passages of the Bible have been quoted to them, indicating that they basically need to um, shut up and uh, put up with whatever is happening to them and not question it or else do it. You know, whether it's sacrifice to God. Uh, there was a, a saying in um, the Catholic Church when I was growing up that, you know, if, if something happened that didn't suit you, not necessarily abuse, but let's say you were going without lollies, if you like, for, um, uh, for Lent, which was very common, you would, the quote was, you would offer it up for the holy souls, which means that you would put up with something that was inconvenient or, 
uh, didn't suit you and that you could use that then as a kind of a grace to help people who died get into heaven, which is a very convoluted kind of thing to um, be getting your head around. But I think that that sort of thing leads to people being told that they need to put up with the intolerable. And what happens in that is that the person who is behaving badly is not made accountable at all. They're part of it. You've got to keep tiptoeing around him until he sees the light. That's not going to happen. Thank you, Carmel, for explaining all of those concepts, which which I'd just like to add my own two cents to. Louise, you said there's two more things about Jehovah's Witnesses. I think there's a further two more things, and that is poverty, and Carmel, you've referred to that in your book, and then the second thing is a lack of education. And Jehovah's Witness women are not encouraged to be educated. They are encouraged to be housewives and they are encouraged to be giving their time to God. And in this case, giving their time to God is actually giving their time to the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. If I just go back to your book, Carmel, I just want to read out a couple of things that were aligned with Lily's abuser. And that is, it says here, top blokes do not kill their children. Flawed blokes do. And how many times have we heard them say, well, they're a good person, but this, but this is domestic violence. So did, so we had a situation where a man threw his daughter off a bridge here in Melbourne. And the book says to deliberately jump off a bridge with your child or to shoot your own children indicates a sense that you own these children and you can dispose of them if you wish. They are not crimes of passion. They are crimes of possession. And in Lily's particular case, her abuser was brewing his own beer and he would often have a lot of alcohol. And it says in Carmel's book, alcohol is a fuel. No amount of alcohol will start a fire by itself. But if alcohol started to a fire that's already lit, the fire becomes more dangerous. To systemically abuse one's partner, a person must already have the fire of domination, entitlement, or cruelty in their heart. And so it might be a good time, Lily, if you'd like to just share the story, and I'll just remind you, it was a story that happened when you were visiting Bali, and the story that you told me is when you wanted to go to the toilet, and he was enraged at that. So can you remember that story and can you describe what happened? Oh, the incident in Bali actually occurred over a period of three evenings and it was such a frightening time because I was so far away from my support networks. Um, it started on the first night. On this particular trip, he, my abuser had agreed to allow my girlfriend and her family to come on holiday with Bali with us. And my girlfriend arrived a few days after us. So I organised to meet her at the airport. He took our little boy, and who was about three and a half at the time, and I took our little girl who was um, one and a half. And... Anyway, it just worked out that he organised me to pick up my girlfriend on the wrong day. It was a minor oversight, not a big deal. We're on holiday in Bali. It's not like I had anywhere else more important to do. 
So at one point I just messaged him and said, because I myself didn't realise he got the date wrong, but we had a, a driver in Bali who we regularly use and he was the one who said, today it's tomorrow. And so I messaged my um, partner at the time and I said, oh, it's not today, it's tomorrow. And that alone triggered the next, you know, another rageful episode. He came home and he's gone, your girlfriend's never coming to Bali again and and went off. And it just went off all over the place. It didn't even stay on the issue of, and I, I actually said, it doesn't matter. I don't need to be anywhere. It's not a big deal. We're just on a holiday, whatever. But that's it. The next morning he woke up and, again, you know, just acts like nothing has happened. Um, and so that evening, again, it's time to go and get my girlfriend because that was now the correct evening. And I pick her up from the airport. Because they arrived late in the e at night, I think they arrived, their flight arrived at about 10, 9.30, 10pm. By the time we got to the, their room, which was in the same hotel as ours, I had gone during the day just to get her a few supplies because she has four young kids. So I just got a milk, bread, jam, eggs and bacon, so they had stuff for breakfast. I tiptoed into our room to get those supplies and he's just bolted upright and said, you get Zane back to sleep. I was like, Zane wasn't actually asleep to begin with. And I just quickly tiptoed back out of the room, gave my girlfriend the supplies, came back to the room for another round of abuse, at which point I was so um, scared of him that night, I actually slept with the kids on the couch. The next morning, he initially behaves like nothing's wrong, but then goes, so what's going to go on? Is this going to be a pattern when you sleep on the couch? Like, they can't see, these abusers can't seem to comprehend that their abuse is not going to be met with love and affection. They, they really think, I, I, I can't even articulate how they think they can behave the way they do but get a different response. So anyway, apart from that, again, the rest of that day just proceeded as usual. And then in the evening, he had organised to go to dinner at a certain restaurant on the beach. My girlfriend's family chose not to come. They're very independent. Once they got there, they just did their own thing. And his own mother and stepfather indicated they wouldn't be coming. Um, and then I think there was one other couple, but we weren't sure what they were doing. So anyway. We're getting ready to go. Then all of a sudden he goes, yells, we're late. And that's it. It was on again. So we're, he's briskly walking to this hotel, which was probably about, so I don't know, 500, 700 metres down the road. And I'm struggling. Like, he's a tall guy with long legs. I'm struggling to keep up with him. He's got the kids in the pram going at 100 miles an hour. Then all of a sudden in public he just rages at me about never again, don't you ever make us be late. And it's like, oh, my God, we're in, on holiday in Bali. We're not late. Mm. Like it was just unbelievable. Anyway, I, I don't dare respond. When he's like this, it's just not safe. So I just sit there and then at the table he's sitting there glaring at me and then all of a sudden he's raging because his mum and his stepfather aren't coming and it's my fault and it's my girlfriend's fault and it's everyone's fault. And again, he went over, she, your girlfriend's never coming on this holiday to Bali with us again. And 
I just, and then he, there was nothing on the menu suitable for the kids. So then I just said, look, I'm just going to go to a different restaurant that's got something the kids will eat. He insisted on following me, at which point he's just again sitting there glaring at me like he could kill me. Then he, there was music in the background and he said, this is too loud for the kids' ears. Um, I've argued that his raging was too loud for the kids' ears, but of course I didn't have the guts to say that. We go back to the hotel room and at one point I just had to go to the toilet. And Zane, by this time, was crying. My little boy was crying because he was terrified of his father. And I had to put him in the toilet, obviously, and that's when I got the rage about, how dare you go to the toilet? Your son needs you and da-da-da. And it was just, in this frame of mind, everything you do is going to be the wrong thing. Normal human, you know, conservative. And it's just... So when you got back from Bali, you told me, that he had said, you do not have the right to yeah. finger pointing. He's yeah. saying you do not have yeah. the right. Yeah. And I was absolutely horrified. Yeah. But you, for you, it had become normal. That's normal. Yeah. That was normal. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, Carmel, you might like to comment on that. I'd just like to read out your warning signs checklist from your book, and you might like to comment. But the warning signs that you've got listed are, is there too much too soon? Is your social life restricted? Are you coerced sexually? Is there jealousy or possessiveness? Is there a demonstration of irresponsibility? Does the person show anger or violence? Do they have discriminatory thinking? Are there warning signs from their past? And these are some of the things you've listed as the warning signs. And you can hear some of them in Lily's story. Well, what comes across really um, loud and clear from that story is what I call um, an outrageous sense of entitlement. So almost everything you're describing indicates to me that you're dealing with someone who feels that their needs come first, their opinions matter more than yours do, then they whatever they want has to happen before anything you would want, that they don't want to be... Um, having an equal share of responsibilities like raising the children or because, you know, clearly if uh, a child wakes up in the night, it's your responsibility to fix that and your responsibility for breaking it really in the first place. So there's no equal relationship. But what there is instead is this outrageous sense that somebody is basically their servant. And if anything goes wrong, then you can um, abuse the servant because it's gone wrong. So something like your, yeah. you know, the first scenario where, the first part of it where uh, you, the, the day was wrong in relation to picking up your friend. You know, it's a real test of um, someone's character that your partner clearly failed to be able to, you know, respond well to the minor frustrations of life. And what I have heard about a lot from survivors yeah is situations where life's not allowed to frustrate this person. Things have to go well. If they don't go well, there has to be somebody held accountable and it's not them. Yeah. That's what you've been looking for um, in relating that to warning signs. I think that it's really important that women who are entering a relationship are attuned to that sort of behaviour so that they're attuned to somebody trying to make decisions for them that they would normally make themselves or 
sway their decisions about things that are none of their business. It's really important that women pick up on any attempt, really, to invade their um, sense of space, to in, to coerce them into doing things they don't want to do. One of the really common things that comes up again and again in relationships that are with someone who's abusive is that the person barrels into your life and expects you to just adjust to that. And so often I've spoken to women and they talk about the partner moving in with them very quickly, pressuring them to commence a sexual relationship very quickly um, before the woman is comfortable that she's ready for that next stage of the relationship. And that is also about an outrageous sense of entitlement. And I am beginning to think that, in fact, there are um, abusive men who groom women. They actually kind of filter out in their conversations with potential partners women who are going to stand up for them and not take their nonsense from the women yeah. who are kind, passionate. This is one reason why a lot of women stay with their partners like, he needs more love. He grew up without, you know, enough love and so I'm going to give him more love. Or, you know, he's had a, he's having had a terrible time at work or his mother didn't like him or something. And therefore what I think happens is that these men figure that out in early conversations that here is somebody who wants to look after them, wants to make sure that they are um, happy and looked after and they just hone in on that. They just hone in on that and use it to cross boundaries and they also use it to excuse very bad behaviour. So I can't help controlling your finances because my last partner gambled some of my money, something like that. Uh, so I think it's really important that, and I'm really, really pleased that there are more respectful relationship programs in schools because we really do need to have women, particularly young women, become more alert. And we also need to have young men understand that the entitlement and privilege that is part of our culture is something that we need to change for everybody's good. One of the things that I've said to people in these situations where they've been trying to make sense of a a situation in their life that makes no sense, like an abusive situation. I've been saying, the issue is not the issue. It's not that you didn't have the tea on the table on time. It's not that you didn't know how to work the television. It's not that the cat brought a dead mouse in. The issue's not the issue. They're just things. The person's already got anger inside them. They're just looking for situations to hang that anger onto. And if it wasn't that issue, it'd be another issue. And I think because you do get very kind, compassionate people that try to make sense of everything. They go, well, I don't know why he'd do this or I don't know why he'd say that. And I think that that's not the issue. The issue is not what you're doing. It's that he's got a, like a, a pot of poison in his belly or he or she has got a pot of poison in the belly that's just bubbling up constantly like a little volcano. And that, that bubble has to hang on something. And they'll hang it on anything, um, and that's why you can never, you can never win with those people because they're always going to find the next thing to hang it onto. Correct. So I guess we need to talk next about about how you get out of a situation like that. How do you escape? Because for a Jehovah's Witness, it would also be escaping from the religion <laughs> as well as the relationship. One of the difficulties for a lot of uh victims of intimate partner abuse is that 
they don't see themselves as living in a situation of domestic violence. They don't recognise it for what it is, in other words. So they may feel that they are a hopeless wife or they just don't have um, any libido or they're a terrible mother or something, you know, that they're just not the woman that they should be to keep their partner happy. Um, a bit like what you were saying about how you just keep dealing with these little issues, but they're actually not the issue. So I think that for those women it's very difficult because there needs to be some kind of really wake-up call before they will get an idea that this isn't actually their fault. I know that uh, I often have asked women what the turning points were in their relationship. For one woman it was her suddenly realising that it was a long time since her partner had ever used her name. So he would say something like, get me a beer. And she realised that he actually was never respectful to her. And that started her thinking of, wait a minute, that's not right. But that's a long way from actually achieving safety. And the question I'm often asked is, what if you're worried about somebody else who is living in a situation that you think may be uh, abusive and unhealthy for them? And I think that you need to be quite careful often and respectful What's really important is that you don't take away that person's personal autonomy yourself. So don't start telling people what to do, for instance. But it is okay to say to someone, are you okay? Or to say to someone, sometimes I worry about you with him. If you ever need any help, let me know. It depends how close you are to them. And the next is that if anybody does trust you with a confidence to hold that confidence very respectfully so that give them the idea that whatever decision they make for themselves, you will trust and if ever they want help, you're there for them and no matter how long that takes, you'll wait. Um, a lot of women find that their families, for instance, run out of patience with them because they're too tired of hearing about the complaints. Or their families run out of patience because they've already helped them move out twice and now she's gone back again. What I find is that when people are given good support, they always make good decisions for themselves. You just have to be quite patient often to wait around. If, if somebody's at serious risk or children are at serious risk, then you might ramp up your support a little bit, but you have to be really careful that you don't frighten people off. And I think for people who are living with emotional abuse, which is incredibly damaging, that sometimes people are frightened off because someone calls it domestic violence. So that's the other thing, to try to use the language that the person is using. So if someone says, I don't know why he does that, you might say something like, I don't know why he does that either, but if somebody did that to me, I'd feel terrible and I, I don't think that's right. I don't think anyone deserves to be treated like that. So that's very different from saying something like, well, here's how you can tiptoe him around him a bit more, <laughs> which is often the response, you know, why don't you have you, have you thought of getting your hair cut or, you know, having a takeover or something? I mean, I've, I've had clients who've done things like cosmetic surgery in order to prevent uh, abuse from a partner, and of course it doesn't work. It's it's awful. I, I um, spoke to a counsellor yesterday who told me that one of her clients had been to her doctor about 
a, a physical assault. She had a number of bruises and a broken ankle, and the doctor suggested to her to that perhaps when her husband got home from work, she could just be really, really quiet. Terrible. So the the, the um, I, in reading through the responses in the survey you sent me amongst people that you'd surveyed about. Uh, abuse uh, in your own community you got a lot of you know there were quite a few of those kind of responses you know well uh, maybe I should uh, have sex with him more often or maybe I could maybe I should uh, be more loving in some way if you like uh, or they were told what their failings were so we we when people are seeking safety we absolutely need a really good safety net when people are seeking support, we need to make support and not advice. And certainly, you know, if you're living with someone who's telling you what to do all the time, it's no help to go to look for help, find a new person to tell you what to do all the time. And for people that you are concerned about and who may not recognise that the damage that is being done to them, then I think what you do is you make sure they know that if they need you, you're there, and if they say anything, you believe them. Carmel, how do you deal with someone who repeatedly goes back to an abuser? I totally agree that you can't tell people what to do and also that you must always be there for them because they. I firmly believe everyone has to walk their own path. But I um, used to work in a school for a behavioural difficulties and one of the children that we got came to us and was desperately nice young man um, but he was living for about the fifth time in a, a hostel for abused women but what he said was mum's mum's going to go back to him mum always goes back to him and and then they had to find a different hostel for them to go to because then he knew where the hostel was so it wasn't a safe house anymore so they they'd used up all the safe houses in my county and they were having to be moved out of county so that uh, he didn't know where they were again. Does that cycle ever break? Yes. In fact, the, there's a lot of um, research done about that. And uh, on average, women who are physically abused will leave someone about seven or eight times before they finally leave. And I think what, um, in terms of how we deal with it, I think what we have to do is manage our own feelings about it that's where the patience and the trust in somebody occurs. And the other is that we have to be careful what assumptions we make about why they're making the decision. Because the, the of what we do know is that leaving somebody who is very abusive is the most dangerous thing you can do. And mostly women want the violence to stop, not the relationship to end. So a lot of women who want the relationship to end and, and the path is clearer for them because they want to get out. In a, in a way, they're easier for people to support, if you like. But there are other women who want him to come to his senses and be the person that they fell in love with and, uh, you know, married or, or moved in with. And for them, they are susceptible to promises and to protestations of love because that's what they want. You know, when they to see that, oh, here is the person who was so wonderful when I first fell in love with him, it's, he'll be making all kinds of promises, then it's understandable that they would give him another go, really. But the other reason that a lot of women go back is that it's too scary out there. 
you're living with someone who is very abusive, you become an expert in his behaviour. You can kind of predict when he's going to, you know, when things might be becoming unsafe. Um, Or you can at least keep an eye on him and know whether he'll be dangerous to the children, for instance. If you move out, you don't know often where he is, what he's doing, when he might be going to barge in the door or uh, be standing beside your car or turn up in the supermarket when you're there or be stalking you. And so uh, for some women, they feel a bit safer actually at least being able to monitor what he's doing because in that sense they're monitoring their own safety. And, of course, there there are a number of women who go back because they're intimidated into going back um, things be, you know, I'll hurt your family or I'll, things will be a lot worse for you in some way or I'll tell the authorities that you're a bad mother and they'll take your children with you. So there's all those kinds of things. So there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, I've, I've worked with some women who were um, relatively well off but who went back or kept stayed in the relationship because the change of lifestyle for their children would be devastating. So if they left, they knew that their partner would no longer pay the private school fees and the dance lessons and whatever. And so what they're really doing is the highest form of courage. They're sacrificing their own well-being for the well-being of their children. And Jehovah's Witnesses do that as well because they feel that if they leave the marriage, then they'll be depriving the children of everlasting life. And so they feel obliged to leave the children with the, the Jehovah's Witness parent because then at least they'll be saved at Armageddon, whereas they leave then the, and the children go with them, then they don't stand a chance of getting through Armageddon. If they're no longer in the Jehovah's Witness community. Yeah, or because they've broken a Jehovah's Witness law, which is breaking up a marriage. So If you parents break a Jehovah's Witness law, the children are denied eternal life. Is that that's, what you yeah. That's right, because the children who aren't yet baptised come under the umbrella of the parents. God will do to the children whatever he does to the parents. So if the parent has broken a law and is deserving of destruction, then the children will go with them. I have to say, if if that was the case in my religion, I'd be having a a stern conversation with God when I got to heaven. Don't worry, I will be having a stern conversation with God when I get anywhere near him <laughs> on behalf of lots of people. <laughs> um, I know somebody who left her children with her husband, even though she loved them dearly because she felt that they would at least um, get saved at Armageddon and go through to everlasting life. I think she probably regretted that years later um, once she'd left and you wake up and you realise it's just a controlling cult. But at the time that you're making that critical decision, it's quite um, frightening. The other thing I wanted to ask... I think you... I mean, I, I wouldn't be wanting to blame God for any of this. A lot of uh, awful things are done in, in God's name that I'm sure I'm sure they, that God doesn't approve of. Yeah. That's a whole new podcast. <laughs> a whole new podcast, yeah, with a different... <laughs> a different... Under a different theme. One of the things I wanted to ask Carmel also is... Um, I went to see a counsellor when I was still a Jehovah's Witness. Not about anything like this, nothing as terrible as this, but there were problems. But I was subconsciously aware that the problems were rooted in me being a Jehovah's Witness. And and you're not allowed to bring shame on Jehovah's name. So I never mentioned to the the counsellor that I was a witness. And so 
we never we never got to the nub of the problem we, it was like picking up snot <laughs> that's a yeah. great analogy you, we couldn't she couldn't work out what the issue was because i was holding so much back do you have that i mean can you sense that when somebody is is withholding the critical information that you need to help them resolve the problem? Well, you probably not always, but I think one of the skills that uh, you develop is really knowing um, when you ask a question to follow it up with, you know, to explore it a little further, to not accept a an answer that doesn't give you the whole picture. I, I kind of see therapeutic interventions as the two of you together um, unearthing and exploring all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And if there are pieces missing from that jigsaw puzzle, um, you won't get the whole picture. So um, I think that uh, if you have a lens, you know, because because I've, I've, I've kind of had a lot of passion about working with, difficulties in families. I don't did a lot of couples counselling as well for all kinds of other issues with couples. That I got used to asking about people's lives, you know, the day-to-day of people's lives. And in that, hopefully, there might have been clues if you were willing to answer. I mean, if you're determined not to reveal that, <laughs> then um, a, a therapist can only work with what they're given. But uh, um, often... I think therapists, and therapists, you know, in terms of research, haven't got a wonderful record in pinpointing violence where it's not um, explicitly raised. Uh, I think you need particular training to be able to do that. Uh, so that uh, if somebody says to me, you know, I'm, I feel tired and anxious all the time and I think I've got depression, and then you might, uh, in the conversation, find out, well, no, my, you know, my husband never helps with the kids and, you know, he's too busy and the, the, the kids stress him out and sometimes he gets frustrated. Well, as a therapist, I'd be saying, what does that look like? What does that look like? How did you get into that chicken outfit where you do it all? So that kind of thing can, can lead to it. Um, if, if we've got time for a, a kind of a funny story, um, I saw a client years ago, a couple, um, came along and after a few sessions, the, Husband decided he didn't need any more counselling, that the problem was all his wife and she was just a, you know, an, uh, an anxious, um, nervous wreck, really, and I, if, he, if I wanted to, I could try and fix her up because he was fed up with her. And it's, it was pretty clear to me that this was a very controlling man. And what was interesting was that the, the woman and I worked for some months together and um, I think she did what you would call wake up. However, at one point she said to me, oh, I should say they were referred to me by a clergyman, um, a, a priest, and uh, obviously, you know, they, he'd, recommended, he'd recommended me. And at one stage she said to me, I don't know if my husband is going to keep paying for our sessions. And I said, oh, you know, is there, is there a problem? And she said, oh, you wouldn't like what he says about you. And I, I said, well, now I'm really curious. And she, she looked very embarrassed and she said, well, he said, she might look like a good Catholic woman, but I can tell you underneath that she's a feminist. <laughs> no, are you a feminist? And I, that's right. And I said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I think he might be right. 
I don't know if we'd have had you on this podcast if we'd known you. I know. It's a terrible thing to have to admit to. Wow. (laughs) Now, I think the other point I'd like to make about that is she was clearly starting to stand up for herself a bit and he felt threatened and he was blaming that terrible feminist counsellor. You know, that terrible feminist psychologist that was about to ruin his marriage, which would be perfect if she was not a, a nervous wreck. Well, it's interesting because Jehovah's Witnesses also point to education as something that ruins your faith. And that's because when you get educated and you become a critical thinker, you do start analysing your beliefs. And of course, if you believe in something that's cultic, you start to identify it. So actually, education may well ruin your faith in a cult. Um, and so therefore it's banned. Uh, one other thing I'd just like to mention to you, and I appreciate we've taken a lot of your time, so I won't keep you much longer, is Steve Hassan is a, a cult expert, and he developed what he called a bite model of, of, of how to identify cults, and he said it's behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. But he's recently added in to that, as well as it being cults, it's also... Um, situations like domestic violence where one person is controlling another. It's not just religions, it's political groups, it's ISIS, for instance, but it's also human trafficking, it's domestic violence. And I do think that model applies across the board, that if you're being controlled in all of those ways by either a group or your partner or your boss, I've had a head teacher that was like that to the point where myself and the deputy head would not dare make any decision at all throughout the day for fear of being in trouble with her. She'd get extremely angry and berate us in front of colleagues and it was constant. And it was an abusive relationship so we could go home, <laughs> so it wasn't constant. Um, but, yeah, I think that bite model does apply in our situations. That's, uh, that's an interesting way to look. I'd like to um, just quickly make a point in line with what Carmel said earlier about the importance of getting an appropriately trained professional when it comes to these issues. And as an example, unfortunately in my second relationship, we were forced to do a report for the courts on our, our you know, situation and our, our parenting and all that sort of stuff. And the professional involved was a psychologist, so someone... And this is where, um, Carmel, you might want to add comment. But in this situation, you know, from what I've read, people who are experts in mental health are not necessarily experts in family violence. Now, this individual had been doing reports for the court, I think, for a period of about 20 years. So to his mind, he's a professional. But I can tell you, over two and a half hours, I detailed significant psychological abuse. I also detailed the crime of image-based sexual abuse that was committed against me. And yet in his report, he barely makes mention of any of it. And the comment I think he made was that there were complex, uh, it was a complex relationship dynamics, I think was the term used. And that just wiped aside all of the abuse. Like I could not believe um, and that's where my faith in professionals is really damaged because here I am going to this person, hoping this person is going to put recommendations in place that safeguard me and my children, and he failed to. And the reason I experience constant, ongoing, post-separation abuse and harassment and stalking today, nearly four years after separating, this individual has a huge role to play in that. 
Um, yeah, I'm happy to comment on that. I think that, well, you are absolutely right. Somebody who is a psychologist or a psychiatrist is not necessarily trained in dealing with family violence or assessing risk. But I think the other factor in what you're describing is that this was an assessment for family court, I imagine. And so the context of that assessment would be how do we help these children have a positive relationship with both parents? And so unfortunately what happens if that is the focus is that it tends to, uh, for, you know, in some instances, uh, lead to a dismissal of concerns about domestic violence. So people might see that what happened in the past may not be relevant or what is happening between the couple is not relevant to what's happening with the children. And uh, I think also because, um, I think you said your uh, part of the abuse was the image-based abuse, that unless somebody understands the dynamics of intimate partner violence, they don't understand how that what how that speaks, if you like, to the character of the person who does that and the impact of that on raising children. So it's it's complex. Uh but you know, in the research I've been doing that um, you know, I'm now writing up in this book, there are a lot of one of the most common complaints from survivors is having their concerns about intimate partner violence and the impact on their children ignored or dismissed by professionals and that's that's very sad and the people who don't ignore it and dismiss it usually are domestic violence workers and a lot of domestic violence workers are not psychologists or psychiatrists or even social workers but they are experts in domestic violence but that is not recognized because they don't have the same level academically of qualification. I've heard people say oh well the children didn't see it so it didn't affect them and I think that's utter nonsense. Children however young are aware of what's going on in a house and they don't have to be in the same room or seeing what's happening to be affected by an atmosphere of fear. Yes you're absolutely Louise, and one of the things I often say is that it's caught, not taught, this behaviour. And so what the, you know, that's why you often have, well, the, the, the single most, the single factor that has the most weight in whether somebody becomes a perpetrator is whether they have grown up in a relationship where there's intimate partner violence. That's, that's, that's the single most, um, the single largest factor. Carmel, can I just bring us back to your book for a moment and then I'd just like to speak about the research you referred to earlier. In this book, so Louise asked, how can we go forward before? She said, what can you do to move on uh, or to rather than move on to work through the process to get to a better place? So one thing that you've got in your book is you say the positive end to this terrible list of difficulties is that women and children do recover and it's amazing how well women recover when they are no longer being routinely belittled, abused, undermined and assaulted. And you've got a list of things that people can do to escape. For example, you've got a safety plan in your book and one of those things you've just discussed is go and speak to a domestic violence worker or call a hotline. Another thing you say to do is get legal advice and get it early. There are special payments and support for people escaping violence. You say have an emergency exit plan, have your own bank account, pack a bag of things you need every day and hide it. Pre-organise a signal or a code word that lets friends and family know that you need help. Create a list of important phone numbers, get important documents or make copies. Change your passwords of often. 
think through what you need for your children and what they might need to do in an emergency. Keep a journal, keep a record of incidents such as threats, assaults or what a lawyer or police member promises to do for you. So there's some ways that we can move forward. Can I just go now to the research that you referred to? So I saw some months ago that the ABC was conducting research for stories on domestic violence um, in religion in general. And I called out to people to please contact the ABC, which is a national program here, and also get uh, some radio um, coverage as Radio National, for example, that you would get there, Louise. And we scoured the internet for statistics for this podcast, and we really couldn't find much information. So because we couldn't find anything, and I looked up um, the International Cultic Studies Association to see if there was anything on Jehovah's Witnesses or the Watchtower. There was some research done in Chile. I looked up the Encyclopedia on Domestic Violence. I looked at the source book on violence against women, and I read, I read Lancet articles, and I couldn't find anything. So we took the step to ask our friend Alexandra James at JW Victims, and she did a survey on our behalf. And I just want to speak to some of the comments that we got back in the survey before we go back to talking about the positive things that we can do. And Lily's got some really great positive things she's done as an activist. But let me just read some of the comments. So one lady said, The elders gave my husband advice on how he could abuse me further. For example, financial abuse. After I went to a refuge with my kids, the elders went with my husband first to a psychiatric hospital to try and get me committed. When that didn't work, they went to court, signed affidavits, and helped him get custody of the kids. And I know that that type of thing happens in the Jewish community as well. Another person said, When I left him, they punished both of us. I left because I couldn't take it anymore. I'd either have killed him or committed suicide. They still took away my privileges. I only found out I had my privileges back when I was asked to help with a demonstration on the platform. And yet another person said, I was vomiting all the time from living in terror. I wasted away to 87 pounds before I discovered my JW husband had been having a long-running affair with his JW first cousin, who also attended our congregation. The elders forbade either of us to tell anyone but he made the mistake of bragging on it to his best friend, so I had a tiny window of opportunity, and my parents came to get me. I was allowed to sleep on a corner of the living room floor. So even if our support is imperfect, we still need to reach out for it, Carmel, and that's why we invited you to be here, because you are an expert in this field. And we talk about this a lot in our support network, so... When um, Jehovah's Witnesses leave, they often find, say, for example, a Facebook group, a support group. And one of the things that I saw written up so frequently was about domestic violence. So if we go back now and talk about the positive things that can happen, Carmel, you're an advocate and you talked about the type of work that you do with the media, that you do public speaking, you've written your book. Lily, can you just take us through some of the advocacy work that you've done? For example, you met Rosie Batty and you met with the police commissioner and you've um, been part of a documentary. Can you tell us? Yeah, I've had um, the opportunity to become an advocate um, and that all occurred because of the contact that I originally made with domestic violence agencies. And in, in our area, there's a, a 
a service called the Eastern Domestic Violence Outreach Service and they were one of the first to suggest they put my name forward to Women's Health East here in Victoria. And Women's Health East actually have a training program to help women to, yeah, to, to, to speak to the media, to speak to the public, to advocate against, you know, speak out against domestic violence on a number of forums. And for me, that's a little bit that's given me some of my power back, actually. One of the things I recognise significantly is the attempts through the systems to silence victims. There's this concept that unless you have someone locked up in jail, what you're basically you're lying until you can prove what they've done. And of course, in psychological abuse, that's near impossible. It's happened behind closed doors. There's no physical evidence. So my philosophy is that so long as I'm being abused, I'm going to speak out against that abuse. I'm not going to hide my abuser's abuse. I'm going to let it be known what he's doing. And, yeah, I'm not... The reality is he's never going to stop. And until the systems surrounding me, and I mean the legal systems and the policing systems, stop him... Um, he's not going to stop. And at this stage, as I've mentioned earlier, it's nearly four years they haven't stopped him. It just goes on and goes on. But I am determined to speak out against family violence. Um, I will do whatever I can to change the system so that in future my daughters don't have to deal, navigate this horrible path. I don't want another woman to experience what I have experienced. Um, and the only way to do that is to raise awareness. One of the other significant issues with family violence is the constant victim blaming and that is another thing that I speak out against because it's got to stop. Yes, and the only way to stop it is to, to speak out. Thanks, Lily. Carmel, I might just talk to you about the positive things that we can do. So uh, in your book, Near the End, it talks about the Quincy solution or the Quincy model, which brings yep. together law enforcement court personnel and domestic violence workers. And also you talked about something called Be Safe or the safety card program where victims wear like an electronic safety card and it can record what's happening and can be linked to support or security service that responds immediately. So what would you recommend to people that they do to advocate domestic violence positive outcomes? Okay, well, that's a big question. Um, I think in terms of individuals, the best thing you can do is become educated and be supportive. Don't fall for any excuses um, that's for, for violence, basically. I often say in my talks that the first thing to do is allow women to finish their sentences. That would be a really good start and hear what they say. So uh, in terms of, though, the community, the system, you know, the society making things better, there, we need two good things. We need a really well-integrated safety net. So that means that you need to be have um, a number of people from different areas of the system who talk to each other to try and get it, make it better. And a lot of the reforms from the Royal Commission in our home state of Victoria, which are being rolled out now, the recommendations are being rolled out, are to do with that exactly. So where you have, for instance, a high-risk family, which um, is a family that's had three police call-outs usually in a year, that there are regular meetings that involve anyone who's working with that family in order to assess risk and see what else might be done. 
So you need a good safety net. The other thing you need to do, and this is what's been missing, I think over the last 30 or 40 years, um, but mostly with the work of, of women activists, we've managed to get a better safety net in most communities. What we haven't done so well is a better way of making people accountable for their violence. The average sentence for a family violence crime in Australia is a bond, which means that people walk from the court, really. And if they do not reoffend or the court doesn't hear about them reoffending within a year, often there is no conviction recorded. One of the programs that I discovered in my latest research was a police program in Queensland which is doing wonderful work in terms of case-managing perpetrators. And so what they do is they work with the police, or they, they, have, they employ police prosecutors, they make sure there are requirements on the orders from court about behaviour, so it might include drug screens or alcohol programs or counselling or whatever it does, men's behaviour change programs, and the, the first time that a perpetrator does not turn up for that, the police are on his doorstep. One of the interesting things is in the first couple of years of that program, the number of breaches of intervention orders in that area has dropped by two-thirds because often, the, as, as Lily just uh, really pointed to, often people will not stop harassing or abusing their victim unless they are stopped. Um, really what the, this uh, police unit is doing is they are becoming the scary person for the perpetrator so that the perpetrator doesn't, you know, if he doesn't want to be locked up, he's got to toe the line. They also, I mean, they are, it's actually called the Vulnerable Persons Unit and they their focus is the safety of women. But what they're doing is making people who are abusive accountable. And as a community, uh, if we're going to do anything about changing the appalling statistics about family violence, that's what we have to do is make make it not worth their while to abuse other people. And that includes education for them and for all men and women. But it also means that for people who are already offending, that there has to be a consequence for that those offences that make sense. And at the moment, there are parts of the system that refuse to even recognise the offences, let alone make people accountable for them. I love the thought, right, that we mentioned quite a while ago about, first of all, acknowledging that what's happening to you isn't right. And I think that's got to be the very first step, hasn't it, for someone in a situation like this, to get an inkling that this isn't right, it can't, this can't be right. Once you can acknowledge that to yourself, then hopefully you can trigger all this other help that you've been talking about and all these other steps to get yourself safe. Yes. So yep. thank you so much for your time. And Lily, thank you very much for sharing your personal story. No, well, look, thank nice. you very much for, for having me. And my hat goes off to Lily. I think Lily's... Um, an amazing survivor. Um, look, it's not easy, but I hope, Louise, that if people can hear elements of my story and recognise things within their own relationship, you know, it doesn't stop. Once you're in that kind of disrespectful relationship, it doesn't just stop of its own accord. And you have, women have the right to live in safety and without fear. And that's their basic right. So, um, the sooner that they can make plans to safely get away the better. Lily has your life improved since you got away? Oh look in many ways yes I don't have to see his face every day that is a huge huge improvement yes he constantly tries to make my life hard 
but I just, you know, focus on the positives, and that is that I have majority care of the children, um, that I am, you know, healthy and well, and usually so are my children, apart from my little girl at the moment, but, um, you know, we've got um, great futures ahead of us, and he is not impacting our lives every minute of every day. So, yeah, there's lots of positives. It's always better to leave. I'm so pleased that you've rescued children from that situation. And I can tell you, my little eight-year-old boy, he's fast becoming a little feminist of his own. Oh, It's really cute. He's, you know, I'm very open about family violence and respectful relationships and, and, you know, I use everyday situations to point out what are healthy and what are not healthy you know, things, just things you hear on TV or something you read. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think when he gets older, he, he might be a little, you know, feminist and advocate of his own. <laughs> That's wonderful. Laura, can you introduce our closing song, please? I can. So thank you so much, Lily, and thank you so much, Carmel, because so many people will be listening to this and identifying, and we're really pleased to be able to help to give them some confidence give them some courage, educate them like you said Carmel was important and give you the strength to go on to a better life. So this song is by Rachel Platten and it's called The Fight Song. We want you to fight for equality against domestic violence. The Fight Song, please, Louise. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you Lily and Carmen for joining us today. Carmel, sorry. Pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to JW Community Podcast. Goodbye. Like a small boat on the ocean Sending big waves into motion Like how a single word can make a heart open I might only have one match, but I can make an explosion and all those things I didn't say Were wrecking balls inside my brain I will scream loud tonight Can you hear my voice this time? This is my fight song Take back my life song Prove I'm alright song My power's turned off I'll be strong I'll play my fight